Groyoso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode number 201, Mining in Wales Before the 19th Century. From archaeological investigations of several Welsh mines, prospecting and mining for copper ores was an active pursuit in the Middle Bronze Age, almost 1,500 years before the Roman occupation. The ability to recognize minerals and distinguish useful ones from the rest, as well as make basic interpretations from these deposits, would have been an important requirement for either a prospector or miner, then as it, of course, is today. The first mining that happened in Wales was through extraction of stones. First, flint for weapons and tools. This would have been relatively easy to come by, considering other things, because flint was generally found on the surface and was relatively easy to dig apart and dig up, and then use napping in order to make them into the various tools needed, including tools that would excise more flint. This started about, or at least it's been estimated to have started around 9700 BC. In other words, nearly 12,000 years ago. This extraction continued until the Bronze Age in Britain, starting around 2000 BC, when the practice was largely discontinued, or at least slowly over time was discontinued. Through this production of flint came about the use of stones for both as tools and as religious items, which saw more and more complicated mining processes using different stones. This extraction of these various stones would be important to monuments we consider today. For example, in the Perselli Hills, or mountains, depending on who you read, the discovery and use of bluestone in standing monuments, burial tombs, and other sacred sites around the Pembroke area led to some of the most famous use for those stones. While there was still some debate in academic circles, most still agree that the bluestone inner circle of Stonehenge came from the Priscelli area. This would make sense if the local community intermingling with others had swayed them to look at these stones as being important or significant, whether they marked things easier, stood better, or just were considered to be smoother, more holy, take your pick for a number of different things. Think about marble and its uses and its considerations as a stone type that we use today, and you kind of get the idea of what the variations of reasoning might have been. The migration of these stones would have been difficult, but no less difficult than if they had been for people building massive stone monuments in Egypt around the same time. These early mines were most likely achieved from valleys and crevices rather than from majorly dug mines of the more modern times. Although, over time, as access and need drove it, they did get more complicated. At some point, largely changing around the arrival of the Bell Beaker culture in around 2500 BC. This brought a various number of things, including different burial practices, such as the use of beakers, thus the name, would also see the arrival from that culture of copper smelting. We've discussed all of this in the past, but I wanted to reiterate this so we understand where this is coming from. 
By this point, metalworking had become much more commonplace as more experts moved throughout Europe and even far off Britain began to use items of copper, bronze, and eventually gold. In Wales, copper mines were dug in prehistory in places such as the Paris Mountains, in Anglesey, the Great Orm near Llandudno, and in mid-Wales at Copper Hill, Nanria, and Comistwith. These mines could stretch a long way, and the mines in the Great Orm went down nearly 200 meters. In fact, you can visit there today and see the mining that was done in the prehistory. You can imagine, of course, that this mine was generally narrow, poorly lit, in a period when you only had lighted candles or something along that line to help you see. Imagine how dark and foreboding that site would have been to work in as you got farther and farther down. Gold mining, of course, is harder to pin down before the arrival of the Romans, though it was likely to have happened in and around Wales due to the number of gold items which were found, such as the Mold Cape I mentioned many, many episodes ago. This is not a strong amount of evidence. It's more suspicion than actual because we don't have overwhelming evidence. We have an assumption based on what the Romans would do because there was gold mining in, in their time frame and kind of how that linked in. But we didn't have a one-to-one -one comparison, partly because Ireland at the time was producing a large number of gold objects. And of course, trade between Ireland and Wales and England may have been fairly strong at this point, as we know that trade was happening between various areas, including America in France, or Gaul at the time, and in England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, all trading iron tools and things of that nature. So we know that that was going on. So we assume that if things were being made in Ireland of gold, they were being traded for various things over here in Wales, Scotland, and England. We just don't know for sure. But again, as I would say, I would assume there would be some gold mining going on as well. And if copper mining was a feature of the North and Mid Wales, stone mining, the West, iron mining would be done predominantly in the Southeast in larger amounts prior to the Romans. Most of the mining efforts before the Common Era were largely happening in and around Monmouth. While Iron Age mining was limited, it did set a pattern which gave the Romans the opportunity to take advantage of the resources and searching which had to be done previously before they could use these various efforts and to supersize the collection of all of these various metals and minerals. And if you have centuries of, oh, by the way, this is where you find the gold, this is where you find the lead, this is where you find the copper, it does make it slightly easier to at least track them down. The Romans, who completed their conquest in Wales in AD 78, substantially developed quantities of gold, copper, and lead, which were all extracted, along with lesser amounts of zinc and silver. Mining would continue until the process was no longer practical or profitable, at which time the mine would then be abandoned and a new one began if they could find one. One of the first and biggest gold mines 
in Wales is at Dolouth Cothy in Carmarthenshire. This complex project was carried out over very many years. They did so with a large open pit mining, at least to begin with, with digging several tunnels off of it to find and extract various gold veins. Because of all this mining, it altered the physical landscape in the area such that it is somewhat difficult to always know exactly what it will look like before all the mining had taken place. The Roman governor, Sextus Julius Frontinius, was commissioned to finish the settlement and enforcing of Roman control on Wales, and it was during his government that it was likely the Bronze Age-based gold mining sites were expanded and developed into the mid and late 70s CE. This would set the tone for the mining of copper, lead, silver, and zinc, as well as other minerals across the country, as I mentioned. Backbreaking labor needed to do all this mining, as often happened in Roman culture, was carried out by slaves. At this site, the Dolokathi site, they also used water or hydraulics to help develop the industrial size of the mine. This hydraulic method would create water pressure, which would then be used to expose gold seams on the surface or close to the surface, and then they would be picked away through the normal iron picks that they would have at the time. Another method was by using fire to heat the rocks and then pouring water into the cracks, which would then create larger cracks exposing the inner parts of the rock and whether or not there were seams to be dug. Mining and metallurgy was a key to the Roman economy. In Roman Britain alone, 2,250 tons of freshly smelted, finished, and ready-to-smith iron was manufactured yearly. That amount of resources would leave a very usable amount of material as years developed. Beginning in the late 4th century, however, the Romano-British economy began to unravel, and the Britons mainly in their small towns started to collapse, some of which were based around iron smelting, and as these failed, they would abandon this process, and as the Roman military withdrew, a great deal of the industrial might and memory went with them. Some of the mines would not see another pick until the Victorian age. This meant that the production and availability of freshly smelt metal was first faltered and then by and large, ceased. For much of the population in post-Roman Britain, this was a calamity, and the need to develop a new means of procuring this most basic material for themselves became difficult at best. The strategy that many seem to have adopted to compensate for the disappearing supplies of fresh metal stock was by scavenging. This then explains why mines stopped working. And at the same time, it goes so far as they started to take metal out of buildings, which would explain why so many buildings were slowly but surely picked away for resources, be it metal, stone, or what have you, until such time as the only thing left were the footings or the bare bits of wall that you sometimes find in these sites. There just was so much useful material that could be used for different things, and there was no need to go mining if you had ready sources of iron available and you had a lot less people who were using it and nowhere to export it. 
If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week, wherever you get your podcasts. Mining, of course, still continued in small ways during the medieval periods, mostly by means of what was called a bell pit. These were shallow shafts with short chambers off at the bottom of the mine. Lacking the necessary technology, miners found it easier to sink another adjacent shaft rather than extending the various mines in any direction from the bottom of them. Such old works can be identified by lines of infill shafts and spoil heaps that would have developed over time as they would close one shaft and open another. Lead and silver mines in Wales would return in heavier use after, effectively, the Norman Conquest, and would continue to be developed and produced into the eventual conquest by Edward I. As the need for coin production and iron smelting increased, this would drive the need. Many of these mines generally were found in eastern parts of Wales and continued to produce minerals for many years. By contrast to Roman industrial mining, medieval miners were usually farmers. They would do their mining in the early summer after planting and before the harvest season. Mining, of course, would stop during the harvest and over the winter. As the weather would worsen, they would not do as much or any. This worked only as long as it was successful, as they could dig and find as much as possible, because it wasn't overwhelmingly a great source of funding, because you would have to share anything you found with your landlord, so farmers generally weren't making loads of money. Of course, 
after this period, during the 15th century and into the 16th, there was little mining activity as Oenglinder's uprisings and then the successive War of the Roses caused a downturn in the economy. This was likely driven because there had been a labor vacancy due to the loss of people due to the wars and the plague previously, which had run amok all through the economy in this period. Under the Tudors in the 17th century, local landlords and merchants regularly tried to get the lead mines working again. They were rarely successful, and mines needed more effort and work than there were financing to meet these challenges. Coal was first worked in Cloyd, and I know you're just thinking, oh, we're finally getting to the point of this. <laughs> and that's kind of true, not going to lie. It was developed in what would become the North Wales coal field. Mining tools and techniques were still primitive at this time, with little advance since the Roman period. The previously mentioned bell mining was still about and was one of the few ways to gather resources at this stage, but it was beginning to change as the medieval period came to an end. In the late 17th century, it saw the introduction of gunpowder into mining, and this revolutionized the industry. By hand-drilling shot holes in the rock and then filling them with gunpowder, a great deal more rock could be removed in a shift, in other words, by blowing them up. It then allowed workings to go deeper, but it also meant pumping out the water, because as you dig out the rock, you would expose various aquifers and other water sources, underground rivers, all of which would cause the mines to leak and create all sorts of problems. And of course, in this period, early pumps were very primitive and were mainly made up of rag and chain pumps. Silver mining had previously been jealously protected as property of the crown because of minting of coins, and strict conditions were attached to its extraction. During the 1620s, for example, 50,000 worth of silver bullion was sent to London from the Welsh mines, and it was said that the army of Charles I was equipped with Welsh silver, of course, that being the whole reason he was able to fund his campaign. However, following pressure from local landlords, the crown monopoly was removed by the Act of Parliament in 1693. This change saw massive improvements in mining as technology improved, especially in the field of pumping, as, of course, water sources desperately needed better pumping. In 1714, the first steam engine in Wales was erected at Hawarden for pumping and other uses soon followed to allow workings to go deeper than ever before. Up to then, shaft haulage, or the extrication of the rock and the minerals, had to be hauled by hand windlass or horse whim. In other words, they were using horses to haul it, or they were using hand elevators. But the deeper shafts made this impractical, as you can imagine. As a result, larger mines used steam engines for winding, and this allowed for a greater amount of ore to be removed. In 1768, large deposits of copper were found in the Paris Mountains on Anglesey, and this was mined in a huge open pit as well as underground. For many years, this site was the largest producer of copper in the world, as much of it was smelted at Swansea. One of the first major players in Welsh mining was not 
a Welsh person at all. Rather, he was an Englishman who had become loyal to Charles I. Thomas Bushel was given a grant in 1637, just a few years before the Civil War, to run the Royal Mines of Wales. The mines of Cardiganshire contained silver mixture with lead, which formed crown property. They were formerly being farmed by Sir Hugh Middleton, who by 1617 had made a tidy sum from his mine, who had sent silver, which he had extracted, to be coined in the Royal Mint in the Tower of London. After the death of Middleton, the mines were reported to be inundated and in poor condition. Inundated by what, you might ask? Water. Bushel purchased the lease and would then try to recover these inundated mines and to employ new methods of mining with a local mint at the castle at Aberystwyth. The mint was established in 1637 with Bushel as warden and master worker and the English silver coins of various denominations were issued from it. Bushel recovered several drowned mines, discovering new branches of old mines. Before this, of course, there had been mining that was being done by the monks, including the Cistercian monks, which, as these various people came around to try and take over these things, such as Thomas Bushel, they would rediscover or reuse old mines that had been either put out of knowledge or just had fallen out of use for various reasons, probably because they weren't as effective or able to get as far down or do as much successful mining. Thus, it would take many years for these mines to really advance and continue to be developed. In fact, the gold mine we mentioned previously ended up being used after the beginning of the 19th century because they could actually go farther down and find much better shafts with more of the various metals. Gold, lead, silver, copper, iron, zinc, and manganese have all been focuses of attention, while various successful attempts have been made to exploit also cobalt, arsenic, antimony, erites, and calcites. We don't really know the total production of each individual mineral, mainly because until the late 1840s, few detailed records were kept of the ores raised to the surface, dressed into concentrates, and the process by which the sulfide bearing rocks, for example, were freed of the waste material such as vein quartz, and then how they were then sold on. Published totals for mineral production in Wales therefore represent a very unknown percentage of the total. In all of this, we have not mentioned the one thing Wales, of course, has been known best for in the modern era, at least other than one line so far, which is the extraction of mass seams of coal in South Wales. That was the fuel that gave the industrial might of Britain its ability to expand exponentially as an empire. Coal was the fuel of the Industrial Revolution, the black gold which powered the British Empire. The energy-rich mineral remains of organic matter many millions of years old, Coal replaced wood as the staple resource of the Industrial Revolution. The advance in engineering seen at the time simply could not have been possible without coal, because its predecessor, charcoal or coal coke, both of which were wood, which were either burned into charcoal or then had uh, a mixture of liquids 
that were flammable mixed into it to, to make cold coke, all of these things just didn't burn long enough, hard enough, with as much vigor as coal did, and it couldn't create the same level of heat needed to be used and to create the steam that drove much of the machinery of the Industrial Revolution. Coal, of course, had been found and used in the prehistoric and Roman times for things including funeral pyres, drying grain, small-scale heating, mining in larger scales than simple surface scrape-off began in the medieval period, with small shafts being dug. By the 15th century, these mines existed across Wales, mostly for the use of small-scale industry. During the 16th and 17th century, an export industry developed mostly around Swansea, Pembrokeshire, and Flintshire. Production began to then accelerate, and it was during the 18th century, as the Industrial Revolution was really get, getting going, that the Welsh coal fields were then placed as a benefit to the general public, and charcoal gave way to coal as the fuel of choice for smelting, and with machinery becoming more and more in use, this production would continue to meet this various demand, at least until the introduction of something that was much more efficient and better, which was the combustion engine. In the late 19th century, Wales was one of the most important mining regions in the world. The country was a major producer of coal, iron, and copper, and mining played a vital role in the Welsh economy. If you have ancestors that grew up in Wales, possibly at some point, they mined something. In my own family, I know at least one ma mined manganese because there was a mine in the local area. So, and manganese is a vital ingredient in order to make steel. All of these things came out of Wales. And as we'll go forward, we'll talk about what that resulted in as mass labor was needed to create these seams, dig these seams, excise these, and then send them off to export to various locations in and around Britain and elsewhere, and how that both developed a massive financial windfall for the empire, but also created a massive issue for labor, one of which would lead to strikes and conflicts that become a big ingredient to the makeup of Victorian-era Britain and the surrounding European countries. So with that, thank you for listening. Thank you for taking part in the question and answers last episode. I really appreciate everyone who contributed through questions or watched or listened to the audio. I hope you all have a fabulous day. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or you can reach out to me on threads.net at the same address. And you can also reach us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And of course, we're always on Patreon. And if you are able to contribute, that would be amazing as it does help with the purchase of research material, and I really appreciate it. With all that said and done, thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.
The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.